There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on May the 7th, 2010. For newcomers, look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website and I always stress that you bookmark the other sites I have listed there for future use because I do get problems every so often with the com site, it's the Yahoo site and I pay for unlimited upload and bandwidth and all the rest of it. And right now, in fact, I'm getting the same hassle as I get every maybe two or three times a year with them, where they're telling me to actually take stuff off my site and to help me upload, make it easier for me to upload, you see, because I put a choke on my uploading, it turns out. So I'll go through this farce with them again for maybe two or three weeks, and they'll go through the farce as well of saying they don't know what's really causing it, uh, and then suddenly it'll, it'll be taken off again and hopefully I can upload. So bookmark the alternate sites I have listed there. And remember that uh, on all the sites you can get the same audios and you can also get transcripts in English of the same audios. And if you go into Alan Watts Sentient Sentinel, you can get the same audios plus transcripts in the various languages of Europe. But that's a must do. You've got you to bookmark these sites. And when you're at it, look into the items I have for sale, the books and the discs and the CDs. That keeps me going. I don't uh, ask advertisers uh, or get money from advertisers. Most folk make their money from bringing on people who are really selling stuff. And you listen, you listen to one-hour ads, really. And they do a lot, a lot more of that when there's always a lot of um, tragedy in the world's economic system going on. But I don't do that, so I depend upon you to back me up and donate to me or buy the books and so on. The ads you hear in this show are paid by advertisers directly to RBN, and that pays for airtime and the transmission of the show and the staff and equipment and the bills that RBN gets in. So it's up to you to keep me going. And remember, from the U.S. to Canada to order or donate, you can use personal check. You can use an international postal money order. You can use PayPal to donate and to order. Just send a separate email along with the PayPal donation, and I'll get the order out to you. Moneygram's good, Western Union. Some people just send cash, remember, and it's the same across the rest of the world. Moneygram, Western Union, cash, and that'll get to me, or PayPal, for donations and for purchasing. And lots of folk get the disc burned and passed to them. They've gone off the computer or they've never been on it in the first place. And they get them at meetings. They play them on their CD players. You can get in touch with me at Alan Watt, Site 41, Box 4, Estaire, which is E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada. And the postal code is P is in Peter, the number 3, E for Elizabeth, the number 4, N for Nora, and the number one, P3E4N1. But when you're not authorized to be out there 
leading people in circles, you get hassles with uploads all the time, either through the satellite company, which is really uh, a subsidiary of the Hughes Corporation, the, the military-industrial boys. They own the satellites that all the rest rent from. And uh, you get the same problem with uploads. It will crawl at nights. Very, very often it crawls. And you can up till 2, 3 in the morning uploading this particular show after the particular broadcast I've done. And I also get chokes now. Chokes put on uh, some of the major sites. And they know that the comm site's the most commonly used one, so that's why they generally go for that. Although last year they hit me with all three sites at the same time. So that's what they do to you. Hassle and hassle and hassle. Try to wear you down, wear you out, waste your time. And last year I had to go, I had to, it took me two extra weeks to upload all the stuff I'd missed on, on the comm site through the same nonsense, but got no refund. Be back with more after these messages. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. I let the guitar wail once in a while because it's a Friday and you kind of feel like wailing. And uh, we're supposed to wail at the moment, of course, because this is the age of chaos when we're all supposed to be terrified of everything. And people are always terrified of change. And what the big boys are getting us all in, in, lined up for really is a, a planned change, a very, very long ago planned change. And that's what this shake-up of the world is all about right now. We've all, we're all being taught that uh, we're in chaos and the solution will be offered. That's really the point of the whole exercise. And we will get on our knees and thank them and kiss them and get screwed once again. That's how it happens when bankers run the world. And it's not the first time that they've done this sort of stuff to get more and more power into their own hands. Of course, the congressmen in the U.S. and the politicians elsewhere across the world always go along with this because they pretend not to understand the financial system at all. And they go to the bankers themselves, supposedly, and ask advice. Well, they always get screwed when they do so, but that doesn't change anything. Um, we still vote the same idiots back in. And I've talked about Carl Quigley many, many times before, and you've you got to understand how this was all set up, this group, a long time ago, about 100 years ago now to set up a world financial system, starting with forcing countries to get central banks in place that would really be private banks. How all the private bank members and appointees would be the sons of the guys that would run the World Bank and relatives of them. And they still are today, by the way, in every country. And in the IMF as well, International Monetary Fund, it's all, they're all related. They're given their wives. They're all intermarry to keep it all in the one big club. That was always a plan, and Carl Quigley, not just a professor, but a professor who was really esteemed in the high echelons of power and Congress and the Foreign Department and so on. He taught many, many different bureaucrats at their high levels. He taught people who would be doing their diplomacy across the world. He was right into the military-industrial complex as well. He was all for globalism. He was part of the Council on Foreign Relations, which he was so proud to be a member of. He was the historian of them, 
and he thought it was time to give out some of their history for the first time of all, and he wrote the book Tragedy and Hope, and another book, a companion book that you have to read them together, called The Anglo-American Establishment. And he, he outlines the plans. He, he tells you all of the workers uh, to work th- this plan into existence from the beginning, right up into the 60s or 70s. As, of course, it continues to debut, but you will still see the same names in, in the big banking families of today, and they're all over the media right now to do with uh, the supposed crash across Europe. It's the same offspring and uh, multi-generational offspring who are managing today's affairs, right on cue to get the power to run the whole world by bankers because they believe they, they know best how to organize the planet and, of course, to keep themselves in power. And they've always been in power above any president or, president or prime minister of any country. They've, they've taken countries down. Twelve of them can take whole countries down. In fact, three of them can take uh, countries down. Soros boasted in the newspapers in Britain a few years ago how he'd taken Britain down. He'd bankrupted it, basically, by phoning two of his buddies. And he laughed at the fact that, uh, of course, the Prime Minister had to go to the World Bank, the IMF, and cap in hand and borrow money to bail them out. And that inflated the British pound and devalued the currency, and people were paying twice as much for everything that they used to pay for before. They pulled the stunt, and he made millions and millions of pounds out of it. He boasted about it. He got a half page in the newspaper, and there's no laws anywhere written that did anything illegal, you see. So they can keep doing the same thing over and over again. So whenever, you're, you know, whenever, the, whenever you find that you've got chickens going missing in the hen house, it's a bad idea for your head chicken to go and ask the fox how to stop it. It's a very simple children's fairy story. Very simple, with a very simple moral. But humans like complex nonsense, like economics and advisors and stuff like that, with a whole bunch of terminology that means sweet damn doll, really. The proof is in the pudding, isn't it? Always. What's your buck worth today? What's it worth tomorrow? What happened? That's what, that's where the proof is. You don't need a master's for that. Now, there was a, a pie in the sky attempt to uh, audit the, the U.S. Fed. And this is from May the 7th, the Wall Street Journal. Another attempt, which of course wasn't going to go anywhere. It said here, it says here, last minute maneuvering in the Senate allowed the Federal Reserve to sidestep legislation that would have exposed this interest rate decision making to Congress, congressional auditors. Pressure from the Obama administration is it's a show for the public folk. Uh, led Senator Lomakers uh, to alter provision pushed by Senator Bernie Sanders uh, that was gaining momentum despite opposition from the Treasury and the Fed. It would have uh, largely repealed a 32-year-old law that shields the Fed and their monetary policy from congressional auditors. So, uh, really, does anybody really pin hopes on that? They've been running your country forever, you know. They really have. Carl Quigley goes into this in Tragedy and Hope. He, at first, he tells you how they set up the left-wing parties. By the way, they did the same group. He talks about the Council on Foreign Relations set up the left-wing parties and funded them through the foundations owned by the bankers and set up the right-wing parties to create the dialectic. 
Um, but after talking about the left wing and how the right wing, the real right wing responded, the ordinary American people that wanted rights and freedoms and so on, he tries to poo-poo all their, their allegations. But then he goes on to say on page 950, this myth, like all fables, does in fact have a modicum of truth. There does exist and has existed for a generation. This is in the 1960s. So he's talking about 60 years or so, already existing. An international Anglophile network which operates to some extent in the way the radical right believes the Communists Act. Remember the Rees Commission in the 1950s? Senator Dodd went there. And uh, the heads of the foundations told them that their job was to alter the culture so vastly in the Western world they could blend seamlessly with that of the Soviet Union when they brought the two together. He says, in fact, this network, which we may identify as a roundtable group of the Council on Foreign Relations, has no aversion to cooperating with the communists or any other groups, and frequently does so. I know of the operations of this network because I've studied it for 20 years, and was permitted it for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. He was the historian for them. He updated their history. I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have for much of my life been close to it and to many of its instruments. I have objected both in the past and recently to a few of its policies, notably to its belief that England was an Atlantic rather than a European power and must be allied or even federated with the United States and must remain isolated from Europe. But in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown, and I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. He wanted Britain to be amalgamated with uh, Europe, which it is. The roundtable groups have already been mentioned in this book several times, notably in connection with the formation of the British Commonwealth in Chapter 4 and in the discussion of appeasement in Chapter 12. And they used to have clubs in those days. They still have clubs today, like the Cliveden set and all that kind of stuff. At the risk of some repetition, the story will be summarized here because the American branch of this organization, sometimes called the Eastern Establishment, which is now called the Council on Foreign Relations, has played a very significant role in the history of the United States in the last generation. The round table groups were semi-secret discussion and lobbying groups organized by Lionel Curtis, Philip Kerr, who's Lord Lothian, and Sir William S. Maris. This was done on behalf of Lord Milner, who from the Cecil Rhodes uh, Group and the Milner Society became the Royal Institute for International Affairs. I added that part in just because it's in the book too. The dominant trustee of the Rhodes Trust in the last two decades. The original purpose of these groups was to seek to federate the English-speaking world along lines laid down by Cecil Rhodes uh, and William T. Stead and the money for the organizational work came originally from the Rhodes Trust, and it was taken over by the co-founder of the Rhodes Trust, by the way, who was Lord Rothschild, who also was left with the will of Cecil Rhodes. And he goes on about the different banks that were in it, too, who were involved and still are. He says that the leaders of the group were Milner until his death in 1925, followed by Curtis, as Lionel Curtis, Robert H. Lord Brandt, brother-in-law of Lady Astor, who set up the Fabian Society, who still put prime ministers in today in Britain, like Blair, then Brown, until his death in 1963. And now Adam D. Maris, uh, son of William and Brandt, successor, managing director of Lazard Brothers. They're big boy players right up there with the IMF today, in fact, dealing with Europe. It says the original intention has been to 
um, had been to collegi- uh, collegial leadership, but Milner was too secretive and headstrong to share the role. He did so only in the period of 1913 to 1919, when he held regular meetings with some of his closest friends to coordinate their activities as a pressure group in the struggle with the Wilhelmine Germany. This they called their ginger group after Milner's death in 25. The leadership was largely shared by the survivors of Milner's kindergarten. That's what they called their their group where they brought newcomers in, trainees, kindergarten. That is the group of young Oxford men who he used as civil servants in his reconstruction of South Africa. By the way, this same group caused the Boer War, and he tells you in the book how they caused it and blamed it on the, the Boers so they could get the British Army in and take over, and of course Milner and uh, we find Cecil Rhodes, uh, who owned the Beers Company, uh, grabbed all the diamonds and gold, and the British taxpayer funded it and funded the armies and all the rest of it. Back with more after these messages. Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix, just giving you some background history that really is pertinent to today, because everything that's happening today was planned an awful long time ago by the very group that I'm talking about here, uh, that Carol quickly talks about. He was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations-Royal Institute of International Affairs, and he, re- he worked with all the big foundational front organizations they had to bring in their world government. But they, he really believed that the big bankers, who also would use the intellectuals of academia, they would run the world much better than, than people who are in it for themselves, the politicians, etc., etc. And they have brought on depressions, uh, planned depressions, as they garnish everybody's uh, work that's already made up, their little factories and little shops and all the rest of it, and they buy them for peanuts during depressions when everybody crashes, and then amalgamate them into big corporations. Same with the farming industry, that's what they did as well. In other words, you look at a country, what's a country need to be self-sufficient? What do people need to be self-sufficient? And then you simply crash them and take them all over. That's where your big agri-food businesses came from too, was really the last Great Depression. That's when they really started amalgamating them then, as they bought up massive farmland, stock, animals, everything for peanuts. Now it's factories, now it's even countries are buying up for peanuts under the guise that they're there to serve you. As I say, when you're, the, the hen house is being raided and you can't find out who's doing it, don't go and ask the fox. In other words, don't go to the bankers. On page 951, Quigley, who was a member of this group and all for this type of, of rulership over the world, uh, goes on to say, the chief backbone of this organization grew up along the already existing financial corporation running from the Morgan Bank in New York to a group of international financiers in London led by Lazard Brothers. Lord Milner himself in 1901 had refused a fabulous offer worth up to $100,000 a year at that time, being the millions today, to become one of the three partners of the Morgan Bank in London in succession to the younger J.P. Morgan, who moved from London to join his father in New York. Eventually, the vacancy went to E.C. Grenfell, so that the London affiliate of Morgan became known as Morgan, Grenfell & Company. 
Instead, Milner became director of a number of public banks, chiefly the London Joint Stock Bank, the corporate precursor of the Midland Bank. He became one of the greatest political and financial powers in England, and his disciples strategically policed throughout England in significant places such as the editorship of the Times. All those in this group were given strategic jobs all across newspapers, etc., the editorship of The Observer, the managing directorship of Lazard Brothers, various administrative posts, and even cabinet, that's government positions. Ramifications were established in politics, high finance, Oxford, and London universities, periodicals, and the civil service. They filled the civil service with their own members. And they also created and set up and staffed the tax-exempt foundations that now run the non-governmental organizations that lobby government, who are only happy to see them and say, thank goodness, we've been waiting for you. We've had all these bills that you want drafted and ready to go. That's how the, the Soviet system worked as well, by the way. At the end of World War uh, one, and, or start of World War I, 1914, it became clear the organization of this system had to be greatly extended. Once again, the task was entrusted to Lionel Curtis, who established in England and each dominion, that's the territory of uh, the, the British Commonwealth, a front organization to the existing local roundtable groups. This front organization called the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and that's what it is, folks. The guys that put out with the CFR their own uh, monthly magazine even today, and they tell you where they're taking the world, and they're always right on the money. So it had as its nucleus in each area the existing submerged roundtable group. They're the ones who hammer out the strategies. In New York, it was known as the Council on Foreign Relations and was a front for J.P. Morgan and Company in association with a very small American round table group, and it's still on the go today managing the American affairs. The American organizers were dominated by the large number of Morgan experts, including Lamont and Beer, who had gone to the Paris Peace Conference and then became close friends with a similar group of English experts, which had been recruited by the Milner Group. In fact, the original plans for the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations were drawn up at Paris in 19, I think it's 18 or 19. The Council of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which by Curtis's energy came to be housed in Chatham House across St. James Square from the Astor family, was soon known by the name of this headquarters, and the board of the Council on Foreign Relations have carried ever since the marks of their origin. Until 1960, the council at Chatham House was dominated by the dwindling group of Milner Associates, while the paid staff members were largely the agents of Lionel Curtis. And by the way, you can get a lot of the books of Curtis, as a lot churned out by Curtis himself. The round table uh, for years until 1961 was edited uh, from the, black, the back door of Chatham House grounds in Ormond Yard, and its telephone came through the Chatham House switchboard. The New York branch was dominated by the associates of the Morgan Bank. For example, in 1928, the Council on Foreign Relations had John W. Davis as president, Paul Cravath as vice president, and a council of 13 others, which included Owen D. Young, Russell C. Levingwell, Norman Davis, Alan Dulles, the guys who were all involved with the CIA, George W. Wickersham, Frank L. Polk, uh, Whitney uh, Shepherdson, Isaiah Bowman, Stephen P. Duggan, and Otto Kahn. Throughout its history, the Council has been associated with American roundtables such as Beer, Lippmann, Shepherdson, and Jerome Green. It's a fascinating book, and you'll never know what's happening today unless you understand 
their big plan, which is all in the book, by the way, back after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, just giving some background and how not only the 20th century was run, but their plans for the 21st century, where they're supposed to fulfill all this. This is the century of change, you see. And what they mean by that is that the proper change, where the proper people will properly run the world as they see fit, you see. And we have a brand new way of living, as you're all little serfs. And in this actual book, uh, you'll find that Professor Carl Quigley said the new system will be a new feudal system where your new feudal overlords will be the CEOs of international corporations, the big banking boys, and that you down below doing what you're told to serve them, the way it should be worked out, you see. And they'll keep the population at the right numbers and just make sure there's enough workers bred for the work that has to be done. And you know that you won't be purchasing little toys made in China anymore that fall apart in a week or two. You'll be paying everything back in fees and taxes. That's how it's going to work. It's a privilege to live under these guys. You see, everything's a privilege. Now, Professor Quigley also goes on to the New York branch and who dominated it through the Morgan Bank. And he says, for example, in 1920, the Council on Foreign Relations had John W. Davis as president. He names them all, all the well-known, well-known families that, that, whose that sons and, and daughters are still working yet in the same organizations. And he was into academia because, you see, they started to, they started to control all academia and all research and, and all directions of all research, including all the political, uh, the political correctness as well, because they get them massive grants, and then they put their own boys in there as professors. Just the academic figures uh, have been those linked with to Morgan, such as James T. Shortwell, Charles Samer, Joseph P. Chamberlain, Philip uh, Jessup, Isaiah Bowman, and more recently Philip Mosley, Grayson L. Kirk and Henley M. Royston. The Wall Street contracts with these were created originally from Morgan's influence in handling large academic endowments. In the case of the largest of these endowments, that at uh, Harvard, the influence was usually exercised indirectly through State Street Boston, which for much of the 20th century came through the Boston banker Thomas Nelson Perkins. Closely allied with this Morgan influence were a small group of Wall Street law firms whose chief figures were Elihu Root, John D. W. Davis, Paul D. Cravath, Russell Levingwell, and Dulles Brothers. And more recently, Arthur H. Dean, Philip D. Dean, or D. Reed, and John J. McCoy, McCloy. I've got, I've hard, hard to see here. I've got a little lamp here. It's not working very well. It's one of these save energy things that gives love less light than a candle. Other non-lethal agents of the Morgan included men like Owen D. Young and Norman H. Davis. And they're, they're based at the Harold Prattley, Pratt Building in New York. That's their center in New York and the Chatham House in London. On this basis, which was originally uh, financial and goes back to George Peabody, the Peabody family, who were related to the Rothschilds through marriage, uh, grew up in the 20th century, a power structure between London and New York which permeated deeply into university life, the press, 
and the practice of foreign policy. They ruled it all, folks, and they still do. Actually, more strongly now than they even did then. In England, the center was a roundtable group, while in the United States it was J.P. Morgan and Company, or its local branches in Boston, Philadelphia, and Cleveland. Some rather incidental examples of the operations of this structure are very revealing, just because they are incidental. For example, it's set up in Princeton, a reasonable copy of the roundtable group's chief Oxford headquarters, All Souls College. This copy called the Institute for Advanced Study. Very, very good. You can go in there and look for it yourself on the websites. It's fascinating stuff and all the big names associated with it too. They direct the world of science, all sciences, and PC, political correctness. This is and best known perhaps as the refuge of Einstein, Oppenheimer, John von Neumann, and George F. Keenan was organized by Abraham Flexner of the Carnegie Foundation and the Rockefeller's General Education Board after he had experienced the delights of all souls while serving as Rhodes Memorial Lecturer at Oxford. Say they're all tied together, these foundations. The plans were largely drawn by Tom Jones, one of the roundtable's most active intriguers and foundation administrators. The American branch of this English establishment exerted much of its influence through five American newspapers, the New York Times, New York Herald, Tribune, Christian Science Monitor, and the Washington Post, and the lamented Boston Evening Transcript. In fact, the editor of the Christian Science Monitor was the chief American correspondent anonymously of the Round Table, and Lord Lothian, the original editor of the Round Table and later secretary of the Rhodes Trust, an ambassador to Washington, was a frequent writer on the Monitor. It might be mentioned that the existence of this Wall Street Anglo-American axis has quite ob- was quite obvious uh, once it's pointed out. It is reflected in the fact that such Wall Street luminaries as John W. Davis, Lewis Douglas, John Whitney, and Douglas Dillon were appointed to be American ambassadors in London. They're all they've run your governments for a hundred years, and Britain too, and now pretty well all of them in Europe as well. Now, they didn't to stop there. You see, they wanted a united Europe. And they thought World War II, if World War I didn't do it, then World War II might just bring it on. And that was a stipulation uh, at the end of, uh, by Truman and others, uh, taken over by uh, Eisenhower. They wanted to give the Lend-Lease Aid package on condition that the whole of Europe, including Britain, unite together. But they also wanted a, a united Americas and a Pacific Rim organization to unite uh, Australia, New Zealand, China, and all the countries over there. It says here, this double international network in which the roundtable groups formed the semi-secret or secret nuclei of the Institutes of International Affairs was extended into a third network in 1925. That's how far back they decided to, to set up the Far East as well. Organized by the same people for the same motives. Once again, the mastermind was Lionel Curtis, and the earlier roundtable groups and the Institutes of International Affairs were used as nuclei for the new network. However, this new organization for Pacific Affairs was extended to ten countries, while the roundtable groups existed only in seven. The new additions, ultimately China, Japan, France, the Netherlands, and Soviet Russia, had Pacific councils set up from scratch. See, they worked with other countries too, the same organization just to confuse anybody who investigated. In Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, Pacific councils interlocked and dominated by the Institutes of International Affairs were set up. In England, Chatham House served as English centre for both nets, while in the United States the two were parallel creations, not subordinate of the Wall Street allies of the Morgan Bank. 
The financing came from the same international banking groups and their subsidiary commercials, commercial and industrial firms. In England, Chatham House was financed for both networks by the contributions of Sir Abe Bailey, the Astor family, and additional funds largely acquired by the persuasive powers of Lionel Curtis. The financial difficulties of the IPR, the Institute for Pacific Relations, they called it at the time, councils in the British Dominions, in the Depression of 29-35 resulted in a very revealing effort to save money, while the local institution of the International of Institute of International Affairs absorbed the local Pacific Council, both of which were in a way expensive and leadless fronts for the local roundtable groups. They, re, they re-revived it later on too, uh, and again, that's why you have that this APIC um, group right now to do with the Pacific Rim country for amalgamation. Same boys behind it. These guys literally run to everything. And by the way, uh, during World War II, they set up the OSS, which became MI6 after World War II for, for Britain, and the CIA for the United States of America. The headquarters was at Chatham House, folks. The headquarters was at Chatham House, the headquarters of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, a private banking-owned organization. And these boys were the international money lenders for the planet. One of their members actually boasted that uh, uh, he literally held sway of every country's finances across the globe. Says here, the chief aims of this elaborate semi-secret organization were largely commendable, because he's all for it, of course, to coordinate the international activities, the outlooks of all the English-speaking world into one, starting with him, of course, starting with English ones, which would largely, largely as true, be that of the London group, to work to maintain the peace, <laughs> to help backward colonial and undeveloped countries to advance towards stability, law and order, but only under their rule, of course, through the IMF and prosperity along lines somewhat similar to those taught at Oxford and the University of London, especially the School of Economics and the School of African and Oriental Studies. So, they really have been at it for an awful, awful long time, and the public haven't a clue. We're just hit with a crisis that they seem to come out of nowhere, because we're not supposed to understand finances or really who's behind things and who really runs your governments? Who put the men up for you to vote for? Who backed them? How much did they pay them? What was their association before the guy even run for president with them? All of that stuff. Who trained them? We're supposed to be dumb and stupid and go by the media, which they also own. They also own. And then it goes through many pages here on how they, would set, how they set up their philanthropic organizations, foundations, to run the non-governmental organizations across the whole world and bring in a common public pressure uh, and political pressure for all governments to agree to pass the same laws at the same time on the same topics they were given to lobby. Fascinating book. But you'll never understand anything if you don't understand it at all, if you don't get it. What does the media give you? And the media gives you this rubbish here. It gives you, and this is from Yahoo News uh, just uh, today, the British pound slumps over hung parliament fears. This is what the media, they own this media. The pound has been punished by the prospect of a hung parliament as a currency took big losses against the dollar and the euro. 
Sky News. Gordon Brown's announcement that he had asked the civil service to provide support on request to parties in talks over forming a government triggered a fresh star, uh, sterling, that's the sterling silver that's supposed to be based on, sell-off amid worries over political paralysis. Fears over delays in tackling the UK's yawning deficit sent sterling down 2% to a, a year low below 1.45 against the dollar, with a 1% fall also seen against the euro at 1.14. But it recovered some ground minutes later as Liberal Democrat leader Nick Clegg says the party with the most votes and seats the Conservatives should have the first right to seek to govern. And this is how they play this nonsense to the public. It doesn't make any difference who you think is getting in, because who you think is getting in is not who you think they are at all. They're all put in there by the same bankers that have run us for well over a hundred years. That's who puts them in. And I'm reading about them right now in this particular book, as I say, Tragedy and Hope, by a member of the group who wasn't uh, telling tales on them because he had fallouts with them. He was very proud of his participation in it and thought it was time the public realised just how much of the history they'd lived through was influenced and actually brought on by this group. After all, they started wars. This group, these groups started wars. And they would bring in their own reporters from their own newspapers, which they owned, to write complete fiction and say that certain countries were, were, were killing off English peoples like the Boers. It wasn't happening. On, in the contrary, they used a group of mercenaries to attack the Boerlands and start that war. Then they had this writer write back and published in the British papers that, no, the Boers did it all. And in comes the British army. The, the British army, and it, by the taxpayer, funded by the taxpayer, paid for the whole Boer War so that these bankers could take over the diamond mines and the gold mines and the territory of South Africa. And he was the historian with access of the histories of this group that's running the world today. Look at every prime minister, every president. Yeah, you'll get the Fabian Society, which this group also runs. But they seldom tell you they're all members of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Every Prime Minister for a hundred years has been that in Britain. Every President in the US since the First World War has been a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the American branch. Amazing. Interesting little bit as an aside here on page 60, where he goes into some of this, this starting up of this, this group actually. He says, in the various actions which increase or decrease the supply of money, governments, bankers and industrialists have not always seen eye to eye. On the whole, in the period up to 1931, going through the Depression, bankers, especially the money power controlled by the international investment bankers, were able to dominate both business and government business and government hasn't changed they could dominate business especially in activities and in areas where industry could not finance its own needs for capital because investment bankers had the ability to supply or refuse to such capitals, capital 
Thus, Rothschild and interest came to dominate many of the railroads in Europe, while Morgans dominated at least 26,000 miles of American railroads. Such bankers went further than this. In return for flotations for securities of industry, they took seats on the boards of directors of industrial firms, as they had already done on commercial banks. These guys literally are on the boards of everything. And all academia, by the way. As they're already done in commercial banks, savings banks, insurance firms, and finance companies. From these lesser institutions, they funneled capital to enterprises which yielded control and away from those who resisted. These firms were controlled through interlocking directorships, holding companies, and lesser banks. They engineered amalgamations and generally reduced competition. That's the whole idea, bankers. You eliminate all competition. Until by the early 20th century, many activities were so monopolized that they could raise their uh, non-competitive uh, competitive prices above cost to obtain sufficient profits to become self-financing, and were thus able to eliminate the control of, ba- of the lesser bankers. But before that stage was reached, a relatively small number of bankers were in positions of immense influence in Europe and America and in their economic life. As early as 1909, Walter Rathenau, who was in a position to know since he had inherited from his father control to the German um, General Electric Company and held scores of directorships himself, said, 300 men, all of whom know one another, direct the economic destiny of Europe and choose their successors from among themselves. That hasn't changed. It's still 300 they always have on the board at the top of the bankers. Still, still today. And their offspring are all in the IMF and the World Bank and elsewhere. The power of investment bankers over governments uh, rests on a number of factors, of which the most significant, perhaps, is the need of governments to issue short-term treasury bills, as well as long-term government bonds. And then we'll go into that when we come back from this break. This is Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix, just skimming very quickly through a little bit of the history to do with financing and the bankers run the world and the organizations that that they own and front for them, the foundations they own, uh, the fact that they also have uh, seats as directors on lots and lots of boards across the, the, the planet, and how they've been maneuvering for an awful long time to have a world run by this conglomeration of bankers that belong to this certain club and how they've been very successful, how they've financed wars. They funded both sides of World War I and World War II. Their members did write, so you'll find that in his great other book, uh, The Anglo-American Establishment, uh, how they, they, uh, they thought that through bringing on the wars that people would come to their knees, nations would give up their sovereignty, and then they could amalgamate nations into big blocks, just like the Soviet Union idea, which they now have the colour European Union, and how they're doing the same with the Far Eastern countries. And it all makes perfect sense. They've never, ever deviated from their goals. They don't have to because they run the moneyed world. And, and we all are, strangely and crazily enough, uh, going along with them and their advice and their domination, even though governments, if they were real and genuine, which they never have been, could change that 
overnight with a stroke of the pen and start creating their own money. And you don't borrow money from anybody if you're a nation and you don't uh, become a banker either and give money to other countries or borrow money, in fact, to give to other countries and all this kind of stuff. That's nowhere in any constitution of any government. And put us all down as the guarantors to pay it and their great-great-grandchildren. No, that's a banker system of creation of slavery and perpetual slavery to make sure they stay in control, and that's rather obvious. And now they're destroying Greece as a, a token to the rest of them. Uh, they have, always have a sacrifice with someone and to terrify everyone else to make sure you all toe the line. That's what we're going through now, the culmination of it all, to rise their IMF, which they control. The World Bank and the IMF were set up by the Royal Institute of International Affairs and all the bankers involved. It's a culmination of their goal. It says here that um, in page 62, talking about the conflicts they sometimes had with governments and the way in how they would literally bring governments down by controlling exchanges, gold flows, uh, discount rates, and so, and so on, to bring countries down. It was done over and over again to countries that did not comply with them. And it says here, Mr. Norman, one of the guys, uh, the big bankers here, he was in charge of it. It says here, um, Mr. Norman himself before the, the court of the bank, that was of England, on March the 21st, 1930, and before the Macmillan Committee of the House of Commons, that's the British Parliament, five days later, uh, said himself that he literally, he says, I hold the hegemony of the world. That's what he said. At the time, some Englishman spoke of the Second Norman Conquest of England as a joke to his, to his name, in reference to the fact that uh, Norman's brother was head of the British Broadcasting Corporation. See, they run your, your, what you think are your national media uh, propaganda institutes as well, the BBC. It might be added that Governor Norman rarely acted in major world problems without consulting with J.P. Morgan's representatives, and as a consequence, he was one of the most widely travelled men of his day. He was all over the planet. And he did, just like Soros, and Soros fronts for Rothschild, bring down nations when he wanted to, made a massive profit, and laughed up his sleeves, and he would write about it in the mainstream media. That's your boy, that's the boys who have you all ready for rags, folks. And you only vote in the next bunch of their front men we call politicians. From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me or God or your gods go with you.